All right. So, well, not surprisingly, I was going to talk about economic policy. And uh, in this context, what I wanted to talk about, or, or sort of put it in this context, why do we have trouble beating a party that is self-destructing? Um, and I'm going to suggest that part of the reason, certainly only part of it, because there are many, many reasons, uh, not least of which is that there are some really insane people out there who believe that Democrats have um, uh, in the basement of pizza parlors, uh, well, you know, the rest of that. Uh, and so, there, but there's not much we can do about that. But there is something we can do about our economic policy. We are choosing economic policies. We cannot choose these idiots that live around us, uh, but we can choose what, what policies we put forward. And, and so I'm going to talk about that. And it's going to start off depressing. Um, and at first, I'm going to be attacking Democrats, and then I'm going to attack economists, and then I'm going to say, ah, but there's something we can do. So uh, don't, don't start like, you know, uh, crying or something like that. So, well, that may not be a terrible thing. Um, and I also want to say, I'm not saying there's no difference between the parties. Absolutely, on social issues, it is not even close. Um, I, I don't exactly have a difficult time deciding who to vote for in November, but I'm afraid we're becoming Republican light when it comes to economic policies. All right. And speaking of economic policies, you know, what kind of problems have we got? And I'm sure I don't need to tell you all this, but, you know, here's uh, income growth for the what, uh, uh, top 10 percent and bottom 90 percent over the years. Uh, then wealth is, is the same issue um, in terms of who's growing and who's who's shrinking. Unemployment is still a big problem. And again, as you probably already know, there are so many social problems associated with unemployment. Did you know that a, a, a survey or a study found that roughly one in five of all suicides were related to uh, unemployment? And we cannot have a socially just society without a socially just economy. And this is what I think the, the, the Democratic Party has been doing wrong for a long time, and that is their embrace of neoliberalism. And, uh, you know, sort of the three legs of it are, you know, promoting free market capitalism, deregulation, and reduction in government spending. So I'm going to go over, this is the depressing part, I'm going to go over some uh, uh, things that the, Dem that the um, Democrats have done over the years. And I'm sure you've seen these, these political compasses, and they, you know, uh, obviously they are not um, perfect, but Biden is kind of close to Trump there. Uh, now, he's further away on social issues. Uh, we got a whole t up and down vertically are the social issues in terms of uh, how far apart they are, but horizontally is economic and they're right next to each other. And that, that's, that's not entirely, uh, I think it's an exaggeration, but it's not entirely wrong. So let me say here that uh, here's our first big problem. Um, and I, I can't help but look at the woman on the left. I'm sure they just caught her at a funny time, but, but, but I, I have to agree with the look she has on her face. Uh, and this, of course, was one of his big campaign promises. And here's three of the, uh, of the major legs of the uh, policy. Required recipients to begin working after two years of receiving benefits, placed a lifetime limit of five years on benefits paid by federal funds, and aimed to encourage two-parent families in discouraging out-of-wedlock uh, bursts. It feels an awful lot like victim blaming. Um, that, you know, hey, why don't we do this with healthcare? Why don't we say you can only be on healthcare for two years and then you have to get healthy? Uh, well, if a job isn't there, a job isn't there. And that's what's being totally overlooked here. The, the implicit assumption of this is, oh, there's jobs out there. You're just not taking them. And which party does that sound like? That's not supposed to sound like our party, but it's exactly what this is implying. And of course, 
in retrospect, there have been a great deal of, of criticisms uh, that this hasn't worked out really well for us, nor has this. Here they are uh, repealing a core piece of legislation that helped rescue a failed, a failed banking system during the Depression. And yes, please, make the financial sector less stable. Um, what it did was it ended the required separation between commercial and investment banks. It allowed commercial banks to take more risks. Uh, and of course, this is part of the deregulation part of neoliberalism. And I would not say that it was the cause of the financial crisis. Uh, it is certainly consistent with that atmosphere, uh, but, but nevertheless, and, and of course we have now Clinton looking back on it saying, dang, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, that uh, the, his economist there gave him the wrong advice. And by the way, I'm gonna come back to that because economists are really good at giving bad advice, uh, but I'll cover that later. And this one you probably haven't heard of. Uh, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act uh, that was passed at the end of the, uh, of the Clinton administration, the, the bottom line is that it allowed more speculative activity in commodities markets. And I don't know if you remember, uh, around 2000 to 2007, 2010, gas prices nearly tripled. And this was directly related to this new policy. There was speculation in oil futures and it's easy to explain with, on a board in the classroom, but basically what happened was when the oil futures, when all this money suddenly shifted into oil futures, it drove up the price of oil futures. So if you're in the Middle East, you're thinking, hey, the market says that oil will be more expensive in the future. I'm not going to pump it out of the ground yet, which of course makes the price go up now. Uh, and then again, the deregulation leg. Here we have the reduced government spending part. And this is the Clinton surpluses at the end of his administration. And I want to ask you something. If the government is earning more than it's spending, which is what happens when there's a surplus, then who is it that's spending more than they're earning? Because there's got to be somebody. It's a zero-sum game. For, for every surplus, there has to be a deficit. For every deficit, there has to be a surplus. And, and the simple answer is, what happened during those years of government surplus is that the private sector went heavily into debt. Because of course they did. They were paying higher and higher taxes and the government wasn't putting the money back in the economy. They were draining income from the macro economy. Now here's something scary. The Republicans have figured this one out. Uh, they appear to understand that the US can't possibly go bankrupt in its own currency. That's totally off the table. I mean, I can give you citations from private investment companies to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis over and over and over saying it's impossible for the United States to go bankrupt in its own currency. When the Mexican financial crisis in 94, it was not because they owed money in pesos. That would have been easy. It was because they owed money in foreign currency. In Greece, the money they owed was in euros and Greece does not print euros, but our money we owe is in dollars. And so as a continent, there's all kinds of things to say about this. I actually have a whole separate talk I do on this. Um, but there actually is no consequence to having larger and larger deficits in debt ever, ever. Um, and the Republicans apparently understand this. Uh, and the only big problem is if you continue to stimulate the macro economy when it's already at full employment, you can cause inflation. And that's exactly what happened during World War II. We've got unemployment at, le at less than 2% and these huge deficits that were uh, for the war effort. And that's why we had rationing, uh, because it was going to cause terrible inflation. So yes, there is a consequence, and that is that it can cause inflation if you stimulate the economy past the point of full employment, but then that's why you don't do that. Uh, it's kind of like saying, 
hey, be careful putting air in your tire there. That tire is going to explode. Well, I was going to stop. Uh, you know, I was going to stop because I had a goal. Goal was, you know, 35. Uh, uh, well, this I need the engineer to help me out here. 35. Uh, what is it, Mark? PSI stands for uh, uh, 35. Range. Pardon? Counts per square inch. Oh, thank you, thank you. Vielen Dank. Uh, so let's see here. And this is why, you know, when the Democrats talk about social programs, they don't think they can fund them. Meanwhile, the Republicans fund every war they want, and they fund every tax cut for the rich they want. Um, so, and, and it didn't stop with Clinton. This is the economic recovery after the financial crisis. The red line is. The red line is the economic recovery after the financial crisis under Obama. The top left is GDP growth. Oh, I'm sorry, I should point out, all the other lines are every other um, post-recession expansion since World War II. Uh, the green one happens to be, let's see, I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, the green one is 91 to 2001, the black one's 2001 to 2007. But that's not the important thing here. The important thing is the red one. And the top left is GDP. And you can see this was the weakest expansion after a recession since World War II. The top right is consumption expenditures, and that was also the weakest. And then the private investment, and by the way, that doesn't mean financial investment, it means uh, physical investment, building you know, factories and, and, and such. Um, it wasn't the weakest there, but you can see it wasn't also the strongest. But look at the government expenditures. It's the only one where it trends down the whole time. And you might say, well, of course it does, because we had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act after the financial crisis. So obviously we'd spend less after that. No, no, it continued to go down after that. In fact, this table down the, or this chart down the bottom there, this shows the impact of government spending on GDP. And if the little squiggly blue line is below the black line, then government spending actually reduced the growth of GDP because it was falling. And if it's above, it increased it. On average, under Obama, uh, government spending tended to shrink GDP. But the Republicans don't care about that because they're right. It doesn't matter. And under uh, Trump, it actually contributed. Only, except for one, before the coronavirus crisis there on the far right, except for one quarter, it was always above the line. And lest you are tempted to say, well, but I'll bet Obama wanted to do that. The Republicans just stopped him. I think there's a great deal of evidence that that is absolutely not the case. Uh, I can give you dozens and dozens of, of, of headlines like this where Obama is saying, you know, gosh, we've got to quit spending so much money. Uh, the, the credit card analogy was used a lot. And I, I really thought this was revealing. This is a speech to students at George Washington University. And look at that second paragraph. From our first days as a nation, uh, wait, I, I got to do my Obama voice. From our first days as a nation, we have put our faith in free markets and free enterprise as the engine of America's wealth and prosperity. If I read that to you and told you that Trump had said that, well, no, wait, that's a, that's a complete sentence. That wouldn't work. Uh, I told you that Romney said that, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I believe that. If I hadn't told you who said that, that it would be very difficult to decide whether or not that was a Republican or a Democrat, and that's a problem, all right? That's a whole part of the neoliberal approach. Um, there's this sort of subconscious assumption on the part of Democrats that only the market system can solve economic problems. We must solve economic problems through the market system, as, as implied by, by President Obama right there. And we haven't learned our lesson either. Very recently, uh, Pelosi says, you know, hey, we're going to do, if we're going to have a new program, we've got to pay for it. We have to have higher taxes or cut another program. And we're screwed. I mean, there's no way, you know, notice we don't do that when there's a war. 
We don't do that when we cut taxes for the rich. It's because it's not actually necessary. And we have backed ourselves into a corner by, by this, uh, um, on, the on the local level, absolutely fiscal responsibility because the city of Arlington does not create its own currency. At the uh, national level, fiscal responsibility means making sure our resources, including especially people, are being uh, used, utilized, that there's enough jobs for people who want to work. And you probably remember this controversy here uh, with TPP, and she ultimately changed her mind, although I guess really had it changed for her. Uh, and Obama was, of course, in favor as well. Do you know how heavily that was weighted towards the owners of capital and not workers? There are, and this is not unusual, unfortunately, in trade agreements, there were um, conditions that allowed a company to sue a nation because that nation passed a law that hurt their profits. So, for example, if, if you passed a new law to deal with pollution or worker safety, well, then Exxon could sue your country and say, well, that hurt our profits. Uh, and so that, this is a little worrisome that domestic policy for, you know, the, the, the uh, safety of the people in the country can be, if not quite vetoed, certainly made less uh, attractive by companies. And, and, and this happens, and, and uh, the, the companies often win. Uh, they win a settlement. Now, okay, I'm done bashing the Democratic Party, and now let's bash the economists, all right? This is a list of every chair of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, since they made up that, that position. And every single one comes from the same school of thought, and that is uh, neoclassicism, whether it's, whether it's Republican or Democrat. So what is that school of thought? Well, the political form of that school of thought is called neoliberal economics. So my gosh, yes, you get neoliberal policies from neoliberal economists. Now, to be sure, there is a range within that school of thought on how, uh, oh, like, like, for example, okay, uh, uh, Oh, well, let's see, I'd better not use a personal example. All right, so uh, oh, 12 years of Catholic school, right? Uh, I mean, some people were like, yep, that's the body and blood of Christ right there, transubstantiation. Uh, and other people were like, yeah, that, I don't really care if it is or not. Uh, I believe in God. And, and so there's a range of belief within Catholicism of how much we are um, sticking to all the tenets and so forth. That is equally true of neoclassicism. But in fact, Paul Krugman, for example, is a neoclassical, but he's on another end of the spectrum from, say, Milton Friedman. But they still have the same basic theory. It's like saying that Paul Krugman is one of the more reasonable creation scientists. He's still a creation scientist, right? Uh, he's still using the same basic uh, framework. Now, it's not just me saying this. Paul Romer here is a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he is a neoclassical, all right? So he's talking about his own school of thought. And he's talking about macroeconomics, which is basically what those uh, economic advisors would be talking about. Uh, inflation, unemployment, GDP growth. And I can't think of anything more damning to say about a, a, a you know, fellow scholar than the methods and conclusions of macroeconomics have deteriorated to the point that much of the work in this area no longer qualifies as scientific research. Um, that, that, that's pretty bad. And I have to tell you, uh, I was on a program with him, actually before he got the Nobel Prize, I like to think I put him over the top. And uh, I was talking to him about this paper because I knew about this paper because it was published in the journal where I'm a, a, an associate editor. And he said, oh my gosh, he caught so much hell for this. Not because they said what you said isn't true, but because people said, how dare you say something bad about Milton Friedman or Robert Lucas or you know I, I, about our great thinkers. So he got in trouble for, 
not praising our, our you know, not having the, uh, the correct degree of ancestor worship that he should have had. And by the way, also, this is where every uh, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors got their PhD since Clinton. It's four schools. I mean, you're not getting a whole lot of variety there. And, and that's not just the Democrats. That's Democrats and Republicans. They've come from four schools and that's it. So not only are we picking from the same school of thought, we're also picking the same, uh, essentially the same, the same, you know, graduate program. Now, uh, even when Democrats select people who aren't, you know, the Council of Economic Advisors, like say uh, Treasury Secretary Geithner, we pick Wall Street instead of Main Street. All right, uh, and this cartoon came out after he was uh, selected, and of course, I guess you can probably imagine what it, what it's implying. And that's precisely what happened. He took a job on Wall Street afterwards because that's where the big money is. Um, again, this whole approach has this sort of, of, of subconscious belief that the only solution to any of the problems that I mentioned above, and let me remind you of those problems, income distribution, wealth distribution, unemployment, and let's add a new one, jobs with a living wage. The market system isn't going to solve any of those, all right? The market system, in the market, labor's a cost to be minimized. So we cannot expect, uh, you know, we can expect maybe to get low prices and high quality, you know, from, from a firm, but they're not, it's not in their incentive structure to um, make sure that everyone who wants a job has a job or that they have a wage that's commensurate with the standard of living that our economy can support. Labor is a cost to be minimized. That's why we do this and this and this. And I've heard some fellow Democrats saying, you know, well, don't use the self-checkout line because it takes somebody out of a job. Okay, don't use a computer then. You're putting somebody who owns an abacus out of work. Um, that doesn't make any sense because the private sector isn't the place where we should be solving that problem anyway. If we have a system that punishes us for using the technology we've got then there's something wrong with the system. So no problem with the self-checkout lines, anything like that, but don't imagine that we're going to get the, uh, you know, we're going to get unemployment uh, income, decent wages from neoliberalism because it focuses on the market. So I'm going to say President Obama is wrong in that statement right there, or rather he's probably right that we have done that, but I don't think we should do that we have to shift to the government as well as an engine of America's wealth and prosperity. And you've probably heard about this proposal, universal basic income, sort of stepping outside the market a little bit. The problem with that is that it's not really stepping outside the market. All we're doing is we're, we're certainly not creating any jobs with this. Uh, all we're doing, or maybe there's some jobs created indirectly by the fact that people are spending this money but there's still no guarantee of living wages. Of course, we have the, the minimum from the UBI. It doesn't address the social stigma of joblessness and is therefore likely to create more divisive victim blaming and, and by the victims themselves. You know very well, people blame themselves for things like unemployment. And it does absolutely nothing to tackle things like our existential threat over the next century, climate change. It does nothing to address that because that, that's another issue here is that what the market does is what's profitable, period nothing else. Now, many of those profitable things are also socially beneficial. 
you know, I went to the grocery store today and I think that worked out, you know, really well for me. It, it, it you know, wide variety of choices. I got to use the self-checkout line with my headphones in so I didn't have to talk to anybody. Um, but the private sector is never going to address climate change because it is, it is not profitable. On the other hand, a job guarantee, that will do that and much, much more. Um, oh, I can't read my own slide here because my little, uh, there it is. The federal government stands ready to hire anyone looking for work, all right? If necessary, this includes training and education. It can include health care. And we can get rid of the minimum wage. Because if my choice is to work at McDonald's for $10 an hour or work for the government for 15 with health care, then I know where I'm going. And does that make hamburgers more expensive? Sure it does. And the Emancipation Proclamation made cotton more expensive. But you know what? That wasn't the point. If an industry has to exist by paying wages below a living wage, then the industry shouldn't exist. Uh, and so uh, another problem with the way we do fiscal policy right now is we try to guess how much money, you know, how much do we have to spend to make the market hire the unemployed people? And again, I, as I say, that's a dead end. It's not going to work. It's easy to determine in this case how many people need jobs because they self-identify. It's easily included in the existing administrative infrastructure. And when the private sector does expand, they can draw employees not from a pool of chronically unemployed individuals, but folks with skills and confidence. And there's no reason why we have to define jobs the same way we do in the market system. People take pride in their, you know, contributing to the community. It is far more popular with voters, according to polls, than UBI is. And it also helps the private sector. That money is gonna go right back into the private sector as well. Now, I want you to think about this. Oh, yeah, go ahead and think about that. And this, all right, what truly ended the Great Depression? Right? And, and I want you to, I love showing this in class because it really drives home how horrific this was. Look at what GDP growth and unemployment were through the 20s, through the roaring 20s. At 1.9% unemployment in 1926, 3.2 uh, in 29. 3.2% unemployment in 1929, and look four years later, it's almost 25. Um, and this was not, oh gosh, the economy's in bad shape. This was social revolution level. Uh, there were very few social services at this point. And so as a consequence, th this was, oh, and by the way, look at 1937 to 1938, and look what happened there. Unemployment going from 14 to 19, and GDP growth going from eight to negative 5.4. You know what they did? they decided to try to balance the budget. And the debt actually went up because so many people were thrown out of work. And look, it took them like four more years to get back to where they were in the first place. So uh, now, we, of course, the New Deal uh, was tried here, but it was very small compared to the size of the actual problem. Really and truly, what solves the Great Depression is that we had a massive jobs program called World War II. And uh, we didn't have anybody, you know, that, that we, look at that, 1.2% unemployment in 1944. And the problem back here was with the New Deal was that, you know, as evidenced by 1937 to 1938, Americans just weren't comfortable with the idea of, you know, that much debt, uh, which of course was, was tiny compared to what we have today and, and the government being that involved. And yet their philosophy completely changed when it was about a war when it wasn't about our people, but it was about a war, well, well, that's okay then. And, and, and still to this day, the deficits over that period relative to GDP are larger than we've ever had before. Now, think about this. What if 
everything that happened in the United States in World War II still happened. But when we, the soldiers went off to Europe or, or the Pacific, when they got off the ship, then they told them, you know, actually, there's not a war. We just did this because we desperately needed this spending. So there's a USO place over there with an open bar. So we'll call you in about two years to send you back to the US. The economic impact would have been identical to this, except we'd had 400,000 more Americans still alive because that's how many died in the war. Now, Melanie, when I was going over this, this talk with her earlier, said, imagine the bar tab though, with the open bar at the USO clubs. That is true. Um, but otherwise, the only thing that changed was our philosophical attitude towards what is a problem. Apparently, this isn't. Uh, and apparently, uh, according to ending welfare as we know it, well, they just should have got a job. Uh, and they shouldn't have had all those out-of-wedlock children and so forth. That's the problem. No, it's not. Because there's no reason to expect the private sector to create enough jobs for everyone who wants a job. But the government sure as hell can. And don't tell me that the private sector suffered from 1942 to 1945, nor did it after that. There's a great TV show, a documentary called Happy Days. Perhaps you've seen it all about the 1950s. Uh, and so that was, uh, that's what followed thereafter. Now, uh, if you want something, uh, uh, a quiet dog, uh, that's the drawback of being here at the house. The dog is outside the door barking at me. Um, if you do want to see some economists who aren't neoclassicals, uh, this book came out this summer uh, and she, uh, it, it actually ended up on the bestseller list, uh, on New York Times bestseller list. It's really well written. It's easy to read. It's entertaining. And um, the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm being distracted by the dog. I'm simply going to open the door now. Come on, Doug. Here. All right, I have to pick him up. Um, so uh, great, great book, very easy to read. And she does, she mostly talks about how federal government uh, uh, budgeting works, but she does have a little bit about the job guarantee. But if you want more about the job guarantee, then she came out with a book this summer too. Uh, Pavlina Chernova and the case for the job guarantee. And gosh, I assign a bunch of stuff by both of them in class all the time. Uh, and if we want to have democratic economic policy be relevant again, then there is a place where we can look. But right now, like I said, I, I don't really ever have a problem knowing who to vote for, but it, it, there's a lot of it that makes me feel kind of sick. So anyway, uh, and that's it.